place where women can be shoulder to shoulder with men in the same series. We don't even need to have like a separate league. We can be part of these teams. Um, let's also show all the roles beyond the driver. Engineers, mechanics, strategists, the corporate Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast. Cusp show where we talk about the business of sports, media, entertainment, disruption, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito here at the Columbia University Sports Management Conference, the first we've done probably in three or four years. I'm flying solo as my co-host Tom Richardson is off doing family things this weekend. And we've been talking to people from various industries, new voices that you may not have heard before. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about a topic that we don't really cover that much. We should probably do a little bit more of, we've done occasionally, which is the business of racing. Uh, so Beth Peretta is the CEO and team principal of Peretta Autosport, has had a pretty interesting journey coming from Connecticut to be involved uh, in NASCAR. And we'll talk a little bit about the team ownership side, the business side, the innovation side, the brand side, the career side. So Beth, welcome to the Cusp Show. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about your brand story, how you got from the wilds of Connecticut to being a team owner in NASCAR. IndyCar. 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 Um, I worked at, I, I ran motorsport for Fiat Chrysler, so that's where I had some NASCAR, a couple of things, mm. two years on NASCAR, um, which is great because, you know, racing has so many different disciplines and sometimes people get so channeled in one or the other. Um, but there's a lot of crossover in, in, in the skills that are needed. So, you know, you also see team owners that uh, have teams in IndyCar, sports car and, and NASCAR. So it's not unusual for us to kind of all know each other. Um, but I, I mean, if I really unravel the, the real origin story, I was a fan. I was, I've been a car fanatic and a racing fanatic. Honestly, since I was five, I kind of discovered racing on my own just by, you know, flipping the channels on TV. And there was something about it that I think I honestly always found like mesmerizing as a kid. And you can understand why, because it's like bright colors and numbers mm -hmm. and that, you know, loud or whatever. And I remember, you know, as a kid kind of asking my parents to take me even up to Lime Rock when the, the sports car racing would go and they would indulge that, you know, here and there. I'd have, I would have Barbies and cars, like Hot Wheels and Barbies. Mm -hmm. So um, people that have known me my whole life, it's this is what I do now is no surprise to them. I think I, I might've been just, I, I was the one that surprised myself. So uh, worked for many years in different industries. So I worked actually in all through college and grad school working in ski business, Alpine ski business, being a proper New Englander. And then um, after graduate school, decided to work in the automotive business. And when I say automotive, literally the car side, the production car side. So uh, sold cars at a dealership. Wow. Then I, from there, went to work for Volkswagen, worked in finance, like dealer finance, the finance that, that the kind of financing that dealerships run on. From Volkswagen Group, then, and when I say group, it's because it was Volkswagen, Audi, Bentley, Lamborghini. From there, worked at Aston Martin mm -hmm. and did operations. And so that's kind of the liaison between the dealer network and the factory. So um, because it's a small company, and I, the reason I say kind of walking through this is because each of those things, you know, wind up being part of a, like that yeah. tapestry of your life. And what was great about um, what was great about Volkswagen is it's big corporation, finance is like the nuts and bolts. Like you just really learn the backbone of everything and um, and, and learning how to work with the dealer network. Aston Martin was, um, because it's such a small company, you wear a lot of hats. So you really learn a lot because it's just, you know, going from a big company to a small company, there's a bit of a, you know, a difference there and kind of having to have, you know, know a little bit about everything when you're in a smaller company. And then from there I was hired, uh, and each of these steps I was recruited, which is really 
really lovely. Um, one of joining Fiat Chrysler, and that job was to run their performance division, run the marketing and operations of the performance division, which they were just kind of spitting out. Uh, was called SRT, was meant to be like an American version of AMG of Mercedes mm -hmm. or M of BMW, and that was then my first professional experience in racing. So I'd always kind of helped out with racing teams. I'd driven a little bit myself, like amateur, some amateur racing, um, but was honestly never had enough time for it. But I just loved it. On my vacations, even like I'd asked about my vacations, I would build around F1 races around the world, right? Wow. So like kind of, and, and still would do that kind of like a bus mentality. But um, with that said, when I, because I then am at this car company running this performance division, most car companies, your performance um, group usually oversees all the racing programs. Obviously, they're they're pretty uh, they're, they're you know kind of adjacent to each other. So when I was at Fiat Chrysler, I was responsible for the business of uh, of all the racing programs. So that would mean that the that just means that the budget sat with me, and so all of the engineering decisions and all of that you. you because you're responsible for them fiscally, you have to understand them. And so mm -hmm. it was like a really wonderful time to just learn top to bottom, you know, how does it work? How does the business of racing work? And I will admit, as much as I love racing, I kind of fell in love with the business part of racing. Mm. And then with that, um, in during my tenure at Fiat Chrysler, we relaunched the Viper, the Gen, we would call it the Gen 5 Viper. So the last Viper that everybody saw the production car. We also brought it back racing, and that was a factory racing program, as we call it, which means it was funded by the car company. And so I had the responsibility of overseeing that budget, hiring the people, hiring the drivers, um, making no, that, that's all the on track stuff. And then you have that off track stuff that you, you always hear, you know, when on Sunday, so on Monday. But there's a real thing to that of making sure that you're activating and that you're reaching a fan base, that your dealer network feels like they're getting value from it. Because believe me, anytime there's any bit of a hiccup, in the economy, everyone looks at what programs they want to cut. Yep. And if you're not selling the value of these, mm -hmm. it, it feels obvious. And it, in my opinion, having now been so entrenched in it, it's, it's usually a short-sighted decision mm -hmm. because you can pull out a racing program, but if you ever want to get back into it, it's going to cost you, you know, 20 X than mm -hmm. if you had just stayed, mm -hmm. you know, the first time. So you, you hope, I wish companies would make those decisions with a little bit more thought sometimes, but because I was there not only to run the program, but I, I also had a, um, Shut some down. It's mm -hmm. interesting. And so, yeah. So how do you get to team ownership? Taking so, all those pieces, obviously you've right. got you've now walked or driven the path for almost every piece it seems like that would be needed to understand how a team ownership would work. Right. And so the funny thing is people have even asked me, like, what made you think that you could, you know, start a race team? And and respectfully, and, and I don't mean to sound like, you know, funny about it, but like it didn't occur to me that I couldn't because I did know kind of or I thought I knew what what was involved. And obviously like anything, any new venture, you're still going to be learning things on the job and there's going to be some surprises and also just some curveballs because you can have, you know, economic or things like COVID, right? So mm -hmm. everyone's learning that in real time. Um the the impetus for my team was really to solve a business problem at the car companies, suppliers, the, the wider thing, everyone was lamenting this shortage of engineering talent. And I thought, okay, let's use uh, rate, uh, car companies use race teams for like internal, yes, we want to sell cars, but they also use it for like internal um, morale for, you know, like if you're an employee of General Motors and Chevrolet wins, you feel prideful about that. Interesting. And car companies know that. Um, it's not, obviously, that's not enough to make them want to stay in a program, but they, they do value it, mm -hmm. you know, ultimately. And in fairness, if you're in a slump, like you feel like, oh my gosh, like, like the employees are watching. So, um, also with that, 
car companies will can use racing as a recruiting tool. They could say, hey, you know, oh, you like racing, you can come and be an engineer and work on our race team. And so knowing that there were all these different ways that you could leverage it, I thought, okay, let's let's have a very visible team. So obviously I'm also looking at it in my lens. I'm a woman. I'm sitting in these meetings and I'm the only woman in the room. I know that there should be more of me. There could be more of me when I'm at the racetrack. I start to meet other women, not a lot of us, but we start to get to all know each other. And I thought, okay, this is a place where women could be shoulder to shoulder with men in the same series. We don't even need to have like a separate league. We can be, you know, part of these teams. Um, let's also show all the roles beyond the driver, mm-hmm. engineers, mechanics, strategists, the, the, the corporate, the commercial side, right? You know, sponsorship sales or, or marketing uh, media, all of these things are full-time jobs that you can have, a, you know, a 30 year career. in. so let's start talking about that. Mm-hmm. And um, if we, show that women have a place in this sport, maybe more women will watch. Mm-hmm. And ideally we grow a fan base and that helps everybody. And, and respectfully, when I first kind of launched this idea of a majority women's team in IndyCar, it was interesting to see which team owners immediately got it. Like who are a little more commercially minded that were like, oh my God, that makes perfect sense. Like wouldn't that be, because again, it's like rising tide. If, if we can now get more women to tune in, it's going to help your sponsor, right. <laughs> you know, visibility too. Um, others didn't get it, you know, some, sometimes people just didn't, and when I say others, it was a very small minority. Now that we're doing it, it's amazing how many team owners um, in other disciplines too have thanked us. Mm. Um, I've had other even business owners uh, say things that, that like it just opened their eyes that like deliberate actions about recruiting and letting people know that something's available to them makes a difference. And then the last bit of it that I'm working on now is we have a shortage of talent, like most industries. And again, people are complaining about that, but it, but I think people need to um, put the effort into, as I say, building people. You have to be willing to hire people that are green. And yes, it's going to cost money. It's going to take time. But I think everybody needs to actively be doing that. You can't always just pluck somebody off a tree that's ripe and ready to go. And in fairness, you know, you also they might need to learn some bad habits. So building people from the ground up, you know, is an investment in in, in yourself too. Mm-hmm. So tell us about uh, running a team. What's it like on a week-to-week basis, especially for an IndyCar series? Um, how many people do you have now on your team? How did you find them? Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about the drivers and, and a little bit more about the, the dynamic uh, on the sales side as well. So IndyCar, uh, why I chose IndyCar is it's super competitive. It's actually, if, if you're a proper racing fan, um, IndyCar is some of the best racing in the world right now because you don't know who's going to win. Mm-hmm. It's a tight field, a uh, very talented field. Uh, we're mostly in North America right now. We They have had international races in the past. So we're, we're U.S. and Canada right now. We do have international drivers, so we do have international appeal. My day-to-day, I oversee commercial and competition. So the way that we make this magic happen is we have a technical partnership with a race team based in Indianapolis called Ed Carpenter Racing. Sure. And the reason I did that, it's kind of, you could do, do it two different ways. You could buy the car, all the equipment, hire the people and start from scratch. And respectfully, you're not going to be competitive for a, for a long time. It's mm-hmm. a very hard, it's a very big mountain to climb. The other way that you do it is you form a technical alliance where what that basically means is so Ed Carpenter Racing, for instance, runs two full-time cars. We wind up being the third car. We can share information, share data. Uh, literally, our engineers all sit in a truck together and after every session and compare notes. What that does, it just accelerates your learning curve. Theirs and ours. We're basically providing them another data point. We're funding it, but we're getting the value of working together. On race day, you'll have different strategies, 
But when you're in practice and qualifying, you're, you're really comparing to figure out, you know, what setup is going to work. Because the thing with racing is uh, it's not going around in circles, although it could look like that. And shame on racing if, if it doesn't tell the story well enough. I mean, mm -hmm. again, the onus is on us to tell you what's going on. That's why I also think, too, it's um, if somebody has a tech is, is technically minded, it's a really fascinating sport. Because what you're really, well, it's not going out, in, it's not the driver that's going out and just driving the fastest. The cars, you know, it's how we set up the car. One day, one team really has it dialed in and and the other team doesn't. It's like they didn't figure out the solution that day. It's building a better mousetrap. Who figured mm -hmm. it out, who didn't? And literally from Friday to Saturday, because we usually our, our cadences, a race weekend is three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday's practice, Saturday's qualifying, Sunday's the race. You could have a big weather change and the way the car's gonna handle completely different differently. And you know, do you figure it out? So um having this technical alliance uh allows us to be competitive sooner. Um, so I oversee that relationship, making sure that our our people are integrating with, with their people. Uh the commercial side also involves the sponsors that we already have, sponsor partners we have to make sure what deliverables do they need. They might have guests coming, they might have 40 guests. What are we gonna what are we gonna do with them? We might be shooting a TV ad with them, you know, all of that stuff that has nothing to do with what's on the track, but what funds us. Mm -hmm. um, and then media, we do, because we're going around the country, we'll usually have media appearances. Um, my team is uh, all told, if you count commercial and competition, it's about 25 to 30 people. Um, commercial is about, really about like six people. Mm -hmm. um, they work all year long, you know, because obviously in the, in the we don't really have an off season in that you're prepping for next year. Our season basically starts the beginning of March, goes to the middle of September, 17 races. Our biggest, the weird thing about IndyCar is our biggest event is the middle of the season. So unlike any other sport mm -hmm. um, in that, it's which is the Indy 500, it's this huge tentpole event. And one thing that the series really has to work hard at is making sure people are watching, you know, the rest of the season. Because obviously we still have our championship finale, but it's in September. Yep. How did you decide now for the majority of your career you worked for a corporation? What was it like to take the jump to be the boss? And how did you come up with the funding ideas to, to put it all together? Funding has been definitely bootstrapping. I mean, you know, saving money. Uh, to, I mean, the first, because I, I started this, uh, I launched it in 15, so around 16, uh, 2016 in the Indy 500. At the 11th hour, I had to put a plug um, had a, because of logistics with, with equipment regrouped and, and took another run at it in 2019, uh, actually 22, I'm sorry, yeah, 2019, 2020. And then we announced this team in the beginning of 21 to run in the 8500 in 2021 with a partial season 2022. Didn't really get money in from partners, from sponsor partners until, um, you know, March of 2021. Which by the way, is the middle of the pandemic. Correct. Right. And everybody's like cutting back on spending. It's the unknown. You don't know, you know, what we're going to do. It, the Indy 500 in 21 was the, the largest gathering of people. We were at 40% capacity, which was still 140,000 people. Mm -hmm. um, Indianapolis 500 is the largest single day sporting event in the world. It's 350,000 people on site. So ironically, 140,000 people, you look in the stands and there's empty spots. Any other venue having 140,000 people would be jammed, you know, filled with the rafters. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, honestly, funding a lot of it myself, and then now have now have uh, partners coming in. What's great is because we have this unique story, and now that we can point to something and point to this achievement, we're I'm not going to say that it has absolutely closed some sponsor deals. It gets it, it allows us to get some calls back, mm -hmm. um, but it's not a given. Has it opened up more categories that you don't think if you were just you know 
a guy who, or, you know, a leader who's been running a team for years that it wouldn't have opened? I mean, is your story different enough that people will say, we will invest in you because of what you've done, given the climate we're in now, where people are looking more at uh, leaders and athletes who happen to be women more than ever before? Yes. And again, I think it's, it's more about able, we're able to have the conversation. And, and we, I will say that we did have one uh, partner come on board this year that had been looking at a property in NASCAR for a long time, for about seven months and, and kind of going back and forth. And they just ultimately couldn't land the deal. And I work with a, an agency partner that helps me to put these fines and puts these deals together. Cause as you know, I mean, it's a full time, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a constant treadmill. Um, and so I do enlist a, a, an agency that, that does great work. Um, and they've been in motorsport for you know, 30 years, very well trusted. Um, and they were talking to this company about a property in NASCAR, couldn't land the deal. And then there's kind of got to this impasse and they, and again, they were, the agency was representing this NASCAR property. So they weren't just telling everything in their portfolio, but when they got to this impasse, they said, we have this women's program in IndyCar hmm. and here it is. And literally the CMO of that company said that we want that. And they wound up um, closing the deal with a handshake within a couple of hours and no exaggeration. We had a signed deal the next day. Now they were poised because they had been looking at everything. And so now all of a sudden you're giving this comparison deal that ticked different boxes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and here's the thing too, and I'm well aware of this is right now we're still in this like honeymoon phase where we're novelty, we're new. Um, and actually somebody said, well, what are your results? Correct. Yeah. So you know that that window is what it is. And so mm -hmm. our next, what I'm working on for 2023 and beyond with Ed Carpenter Racing is uh, where's the investment the long-term investment to have success, the, the way that you have success in racing is consistency. Mm -hmm. So it's how do you, how do you get those partners to sign up for three years, five years? Because also as I want to hire new people, I want to hire a Cracker Jack engineer, mm -hmm. or I want to hire a junior engineer that we're going to develop into a Cracker Jack engineer. I might, they might need to relocate, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's all those things that the stability, money, the stability of money allows for that to happen without that, you know, that instability is kind of the, the death knell. Not to take away, I'd say, you know, our driver, Simona de Salvestro, is, is super talented. She hasn't been in the series full-time in seven years. We drop her back in and she's, you know, within a half second of the guys who've been there, you know, the whole time she's been gone, which is a lot of natural talent and hard work. But the drivers who are, especially who have, you know, seven championships or this or that, they've been on their team for 20 years. Right. They've been talking to that same strategist for 15 years. And there's something to be said for that in all sport, mm -hmm. all business really, yep. right? Yep. So you've touched on throughout your career, probably every form of racing. Mm -hmm. um, the appeal for you to sell in IndyCar versus Formula One versus NASCAR, um, what's what's the selling point for it pretty much? For IndyCar specifically? For IndyCar specifically. I think, it, I mean, just selfishly, I think it's just really good racing. I mean, F1 is, F1 is great because it now has this, I mean, it always has a global audience. You now have this North American audience. Um, I don't know that the competition is where it needs to be. I think it's going to get there now that you're having, now they're getting their arms around cost cost cap because respectfully, when you don't have cost controls, that's what happens. You're seeing what, what happens. You basically have two or three dominant teams and- It's not a meritocracy. No, or, or one dominant team. And it's the worst thing that can happen. It's like, we've seen that in, in baseball. We've seen that, you know, where you have 
decades mm -hmm. where you know a decade where a team just dominates and after a while i mean unless you're a fan of that team or even if you are a fan of that team it gets kind of boring mm -hmm. that's not what we want sport to be we want sport to be the unknown that's something that is magical i will say about the 8500 i mean i've been at, you know i've had teams that have competed the daytona 500 i've been at the 24 hours of Le Mans competing with teams the coolest thing about the indy 500 I don't care who you are, and you could say this to the you know the sports book, and they might argue, but you never know who's going to win. Mm -hmm. On the morning of the Indy 500, you do not know who's, the, as we say, the race chooses the winner, and it's there's something magical about that because regardless of spending, because there's attrition and there's all these different things, but I think that's that's at the core why we love sport mm -hmm. is it's that unknown, and you know something is going to happen in the next two hours. And being there when it happens. And being there when it happens, yeah. right. Yeah. You know, and you know the the you know the chills that you feel when you know some unlikely person who's just dropped into this one race in the year leaves mm -hmm. or wins or crashes on the last turn. I mean, we remember those. We remember the year. We remember the person. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it's magical to be part of that. Does it bother you that in any way, shape, or form, people say you are the, the a woman owner of a sports team? Or is it something that you hope will ever go away? Or do you use that positively to, to, to give you an edge that other people don't have? Well, it's funny because even my entire career, I've usually been the only woman in whatever role. And I say that I've used it to my benefit in that in a given day, you might meet, you know, 10 guys, but you might remember me a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, right, because I was the different one. Um, so that's good selfishly. But with that, um, I will say, and I, I talk about this with even the, the women who I've hired for the team, unless you're a driver, you're not used to being front and center. You're not used to um, you know, having to do media and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, as an automotive executive, yes, you're talking to, you know, to a trade publication about, you know, so it's but it's very different. Where this is very visible, like you know, when you're walking around, people now know your name, um, which takes some getting used to and is still really weird. But um, when I talk to these mechanics or engineers who we've hired, we usually have had a career where we kind of, we joke, we kind of hope that you haven't noticed that we're women. We're just yeah. trying to, we get our job because we're, we, we get hired because we're good at the job. Or the other thing I like to say too is, yeah, maybe being a woman right now might get you an interview, um, may, might get you hired, but it's never going to allow you to keep your job. Well, the margin for fail up is very, True. very small. Right. So, exactly. So. And we all probably, shouldn't but we probably do carry a little bit of a burden of like oh my god i have you know we want to be 150 percent prepared because mm -hmm. if i fail or stumble i don't want it to reflect on this because and here's the thing that is really still frustrating is women are still seen as monolithic so you have like the w series right now that has shuttered before the end of the end of the season and there is an element where people or, or another woman driver who is in a in a series and isn't doing as well and and there's like this thought of like well should they be there and why should that reflect on us? And and it's subtle. I don't think people even consciously realize that they do it, but it does happen. But when I do hire these the women for our team, we talked about it last year. We talked, you know, that personality-wise, we're usually the kind of women that we're just like we're working hard, keeping our head down, getting the job done. We're, we're we have had a career. We don't point out that we're women, mm -hmm. so it's uncomfortable for us. But where we reconcile it is if we want to have more of us. And if we want it to never to not be a thing anymore, we need to do it, and we need to we need to say it's okay. And I think what's been helpful. So I started this thing with Lindsay James called Women in Motorsport North America, mm. and you're going to start to see some momentum because now women are helping each other and working together. Because it, it, you know, I think it used to be, it still is. 
in the boardroom, there might be a, one seat reserved for a woman on the board. And so the women are feeling like we're in competition with other women mm -hmm. for that one spot. So we tend to not be kind to each other. It's like elbows out. There's only room for one. It's going to be me, or I'm going to step on the, you know, the, the, the fingers on the rungs below me. And we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. So this idea of women talking about it out loud and helping each other, I think is, again, we're still getting comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. What um, Val Ackerman always talks about, the fact when she was commissioner of the WNBA, that David Stern as her mentor, opened the doors for her, and that was incredibly valuable. Are there some mentors, especially men, maybe, who've come along and helped you kind of get cracked down those doors that you were able to walk through? And who are they? 100%. I mean, and, and anytime you see any shift, societal shift, it's because whoever was on the other side or at the other side of the aisle, other side of the door, opened that door and mm -hmm. helped, for sure. Um, Roger Penske. Uh, mm -hmm. Ralph Gilles. Uh, Ralph Gilles is the head of global head of design for Fiat Chrysler, and at the time was going to be ascending to be the CEO of SRT and overseeing motorsport. And he hired me. It's funny because if I look back, there's different times when I was hired for different roles. It's like, oh, we're going to take a chance on you. Like I was the, you know, like the dark horse candidate, right. which is more funny because I I didn't look like you had been there before. Um, but you felt you were qualified the whole time. Whether I felt it or not. I'm glad that they thought it, mm -hmm. or they 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 may they might have even seen it before I knew it. Now I look back and I know that I was qualified the whole time. You know, I had the power all along, Dorothy. Mm -hmm. Um, and that just comes with time and experience. Mm -hmm. And and in fairness too, yes, you know, if you look at my resume or my LinkedIn, there's all these achievements. All of those are being part of a team, whether leading a team, and even if you're leading a team, you're yes, you're you, you set the tone. You still need people to be doing their jobs, mm -hmm. and so you know I I can't take any sole credit anywhere you know at, at any of those you know, none of those things were sold to me by any means, but um yeah I'd say Ralph Shields at Fiat Chrysler was the first I knew Roger Penske prior to that because I knew him during my Aston Martin days, but when we announced the team um, in 2021 it was January of 2021 and we were at uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Robert Penske had never partnered with anybody before. And so that was such a shot in the arm because it was just instant credibility. And again, anyone in the industry knew who I was, but it's it's that thing that's the extra, you know, the, the extra rings around it. And and um him still to this day, I mean, if I, I can pick up the phone and call for advice and 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 you know, he'll get it. And he's you know, he's generous with that mm -hmm. because he's, you know, he's obviously achieved so much. Um and the one thing I always, you know, now I feel like I, I, I hope that I can do that for somebody else. Well, it seems like you're doing it, especially for the people who are already on your team or the, you know, the larger circle now uh, that's coming in. So before we let you go, we ask two questions. One is you touch so many hats as a team owner. You've talked about all the, the pieces that go into that. How do you stay up to date with everything that's going on? Who do you follow? Who do you read? Who do you listen to? And then more importantly, although you've given us a lot of advice, um, are there any particular points, especially doesn't matter gender of people who are either transitioning into a new career, no matter what that career is, or just starting out that when people come to you that you like to kind of give them. So you can do the second one first mm -hmm. and then maybe kind of get back to the first one. Um, yeah, well, first of all, I'd say the way I stay up to date for, for the racing business, literally racer.com, uh, racer magazine, racer.com is always, uh, they always have their ear to the ground. Um, Sports Business Journal, of course, because respectfully, you know, there's a lot that, Racing can still learn things from other sports, right? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about fan engagement, digital, um, you know, audience growth, you know, all of those things really transcend 
you know, whatever sport that you're in. So that stuff is valuable. But, but because also we're, we're always looking for partners, honestly, the Wall Street Journal, I want to mm -hmm. see what's an emerging brand that might need, they might be in a growth cycle for their brand and brand awareness. Ah, let's call them maybe about partnership and sponsorship. So I always have to have a sense of what's going on in the general business landscape. And when I get new partners on, I'm trying to see what's complimentary to them, you know, and that sort of thing. So I honestly, believe it or not, even the Wall Street Journal, you just want to be a good citizen of the business world. Um, advice, I'd say, I think the most important thing, um, and I remember this uh, even from you know, even my, my grad school days learning this, and, and it's nothing is probably more valid, is your network. Mm -hmm. Maintain your network. Um, everybody always says, it, you know, it's all about who you know. Absolutely, get to know people. And the most, the best advice I could say about the network is, is to maintain it. So make sure you're like reaching out to people just to say hello and remember people's names. And, and even if you have to write it down and keep notes for yourself until you get better to remember like, ah, you know, this is their kids' names. This is what they did. This is what we talked about so that you can really like build that, that memory bank for yourself. But the key part about a network is to be a good member of a network. Mm -hmm. So when people reach out to you to help, really try your best to help because it'll pay dividends. And, and I say that even with a career pivot, because, you know, I mean, I literally, I left automotive to go to motorsport before that I, you know, I was in a different business and I still, people can help because you never know who somebody knows. So I think, you know, don't feel like you're giving up one network to pivot to another one. Like everything is, everything's connected. And so I think that the, the bottom line about being networked is that you have to work at it. Mm -hmm. What's the hard last question? What's the hardest part of owning uh, an indie car team that would surprise people? Knowing that somebody can get hurt. Mm -hmm. So it is the personal side of actually what happens on the track. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, we're here to have a good time. We're here to entertain. I mean, racing is entertainment. Sports is entertainment. Um, but you know, there's a moment when you're when you're sending somebody out at 230 miles an hour in a combustible vehicle. So and it's. At the end of the day, it's a responsibility and, yeah. and and the crew. I mean, that car is coming in, you know, at 60 miles an hour and something goes wrong in pit lane and something can get hurt. And yeah. so it's it's something that we all live with. We all know it's there. Um, and I think that because of that, there's a sense of, there's a wonderful, uh, racing is absolutely family because I think there's this level of humanity that touches all of us um, that is probably why we're connected on a deeper level than just coworkers. Interesting. So last question is where can people find more information, reach out to you, follow you, and obviously the team as well. So our team is called Coretta Autosport. Uh, so you can go to CorettaAutosport.com. We'll be racing in the IndyCar series. Uh, and you can follow us on social Coretta Sport, Coretta Autosport, um, either one, depending whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, info at CorettaAutosport.com. We, um, you know, resumes, questions. Um, and oh, I should also mention Women in Motorsport North America. So it's womeninmotorsportna.com. Mm -hmm. And what's great about that, we've created it to be a community of professionals. Literally, even if you're just interested in motorsport or mid-career and want to make a pivot within racing to a different discipline within racing, uh, we have mentorship, jobs board, um, racing 101, just a way for women to connect, women and male allies to connect and work together and ideally advance the sport because the bottom line is we want to grow our fans and and have a healthy uh, a healthy sport for decades to come so we can keep doing this. Cool. Well, once again, you've been listening to Beth Peretta, the CEO team principal, Peretta Autosport, who's been joining us today on the Cusp Show. Thanks for coming by. Thanks so much for having me. Once again, this is Joe Favorito. We'll see you down the road.